0: Hello, I'm Kim Kinners, and welcome to The Elephant, a show made with the support of the Climate Kick Alumni Association. A couple of months ago, on the morning of July 29th, the people of Portland, Oregon, woke up to some rather unusual news. A
1: protest in Portland, Oregon getting a lot of attention this morning because demonstrators there are dangling from the city's tallest bridge. At least 13 climbers from Greenpeace are trying to prevent Shell Oil's icebreaker ship from leaving port where it was undergoing repairs.
0: And a few weeks before that, there was news from Seattle.
2: A massive oil rig outfitted for Royal Dutch Shell's remote Arctic exploration parked in Seattle's harbor on Thursday. Demonstrators were on hand with some paddling out in kayaks to meet the rig.
0: In fact, all spring and summer long, there was a continual stream of protests and actions taking place against Shell. And all of this was because of Shell's plans to drill in the Arctic. Now, there are two main reasons why Shell's plans to drill in the Arctic drew particular ire from environmental groups. First of all, there's the threat of a major leak occurring. The area in the Chukchi Sea that Shell bought the rights to drill in is incredibly remote. It's off the North Slope of Alaska, and is over a thousand miles from the nearest Coast Guard station. So not only is it environmentally sensitive, if anything was to go wrong, there are serious doubts about how Shell would be able to mobilize resources to quickly stop the leak, as well as deal with the cleanup. And the second reason is, well, the emissions. Shell's explorations in the Arctic, if successful, would represent a huge new reserve of fossil fuels coming on board. This at a time that scientists tell us that we need to leave 80% of the recoverable fuels companies have already discovered in the ground. In fact,
3: Arctic Oil is now named by scientists very specifically as one of the extraction projects that cannot go forward if we're to avoid catastrophic climate change.
0: That's Cassidy Sharp. Yes. A spokesperson for Greenpeace. Hello. So Shell's plans are not only a threat to the Arctic, they're a threat to the planet. And activists such as those at Greenpeace have been challenging them in every way possible. But earlier this summer, it seemed like the fight against Shell, at least for this drilling season, was over. activists had protested, but were unable to stop one of Shell's massive drilling rigs from leaving Seattle's port for the Arctic in June. And from all appearances, the Obama administration looked set to approve the final permit that Shell needed to drill exploratory wells. But activists got an unexpected break at the beginning of July, when an icebreaker Shell was using as part of its drilling fleet, the Feneca, hit an underwater shoal off the coast of Alaska, which left it with a meter-long gash in its hull. Now when we think of offshore drilling, we normally picture that gigantic, multi pillar type structure, which is the drilling rig itself. But there's a lot more that we don't usually see that's behind the scenes supporting these rigs.
3: So, there's lots of other pieces of equipment aside from just the drilling rigs, And Shell's whole drilling fleet actually includes more than 20 vessels.
0: In fact, the Fenneca was one of two icebreakers that was part of Shell's drilling fleet in the Arctic. But the Fenica was special because it carried a key piece of equipment called the capping stack. A safety device that, in case of a blowout, would essentially serve to cap or seal shut the damaged well. But now that it had a meter-long gash in its hull, suddenly the Fenica had to turn around and travel thousands of kilometers back to Portland to be repaired in one of the biggest dry dock facilities in America. And that news, that news got Greenpeace excited.
3: Once we found that out and that was made public, you know, that presented an amazing opportunity to move this, this fight to stop Arctic drilling to, to Portland. And then it was actually announced that the Obama administration was making it absolutely record- required that the Fenneca be repaired and back on site before they could drill deep enough to reach any oil. So this really was standing in between Shell and its plans to drill in the Arctic.
0: So the Fenneca is coming down to Portland, needs to be repaired for a couple of weeks, and then we'll be leaving. We'll be going back to the Arctic so that Shell can begin its drilling. And of course, the thought occurs to Greenpeace activists, well, if we can somehow stop the Fenneca from leaving Portland, we can delay Shell's drilling. So they hear the news and start hatching a plan of how they could somehow stop the ship. And given this was an unexpected opportunity, they didn't have that much time.
4: Yeah, it was a pretty tight timeline.
0: That's climber and Greenpeace organizer, Dan Cannon.
4: We knew when the rest of the world knew that the Feneca was going to Portland. Um, And I believe it was only two, two and a half weeks.
0: So they get to work on hatching a plan. And naturally, I was curious about the behind the scenes strategizing how the specific idea came together. But,
4: oh man, so I will be really honest, we usually don't talk about preparations. It's just something that we generally don't talk about a lot is the time
0: leading up. But no problem. Suffice to say, they got their team together, came up with some options, and decided on a game plan. And that plan, that plan centered around the St. John's Bridge, a picturesque green suspension bridge in Portland that the Fenneca would have to pass under on its way back to the ocean from dry dock. The thinking went, with 13 skilled climbers, they could spread across the bridge in the middle of the night and rappel down. Their bodies on the line, dangling down from the various pillars of the bridge, would serve as a kind of human net and block the space below the bridge so that the Fenneca wouldn't be able to pass through. And by being able to move up and down, they could let other ship traffic get through unimpeded. Because of media reports, and just being able to keep an eye on the ship itself, they were able to figure out with a pretty high certainty when the Fenneca was going to try and leave. In the meanwhile, they spent their time organizing and training. But as with many things, agreeing to do something in theory doesn't always make it easy when the time comes. And as the action approached, nerves got higher. The day
4: before the action, I was very nervous. My stomach was rolling over itself all day long. I had never seen the bridge in person. And it was a mix of nervousness, adrenaline,
0: and and excitement. And no wonder. After all, there were good reasons to be nervous about what they were about to do. We are very
4: much professional climbers, and we were very much trained in what we do. But any time you go into a situation where there is potential legal repercussions. I think there, there's just a lot
0: of things to be nervous about. But none of them wanted to back out now. They were ready to go, and in the middle of the night, they got to the staging grounds.
4: There's wires on the bridge, and to calm our nerves, right before deploying, we simply counted the wires to know where our spot was that we would deploy, and as simple and silly as it seems in that moment when I needed to be the calmest. That just calmed me. And I was climber 10. I got to my wire, which is wire number 24. And it was at that moment that we began setting up to go over the edge.
0: And so, at about 2 a.m., with the rope secured to the bridge, Dan, along with his 12 fellow climbers, propelled down into the darkness.
4: Um, so we, what we did was we descended down about 100 feet.
0: And what we did was we set up camp. Camp. Sure, it's not exactly what we'd think of as a typical campsite, but each climber would have their own base where they'd be sleeping and able to rest during the action. So what does a camp actually look like when you're dangling off the side of a bridge?
4: I guess I'll describe what we call camp. So I was in a hammock and some people use what's called a portal ledge.
0: And these are the type of setups that big wall rock climbers typically use. So say you're climbing up a sheer ledge and are doing a multi-day climb. These are the setups you would use to camp while suspended on the side of the rock face, providing a small platform that you can rest on. It's a pretty intricate setup, and it takes a while. <laughs> setting up camp actually
4: takes a while. It's a slow process, including setting up kind of where we were sleeping. We also had to um, retrieve uh, our food and our water. So I descended in kind of pitch black, and I you know, was finally getting fully situated in camp when the sun was coming up.
0: And as the sun was coming up, so was the rest of the city to the news of the protest.
1: Ken and Jenny, good morning to you. And now that we have some daylight, you can see the uh, protesters 13 of them, who are hanging off of the St. John's Bridge. And we can now see that all of them are connected to a rope or a wire. So, and of course, they have put themselves here in this position, protesting uh, shell. And you can see on the,
0: the bottom... And it wasn't just the 13 climbers. Even though it was in the very early hours of the morning, they were also joined below by dozens of kayakers who were just as eager to stop the Fenneca. So it was a double blockade, from the air and on the water.
1: River, they have just lit up a sign, all these kayakers known as the they have lit up a sign that says, hashtag shall know. they are protesting.
0: But okay, so they've started the blockade, but the question remains, well, how long can you actually stay up there, dangling off the side of a bridge? According to Dan, a pretty long time.
4: You know, we were prepared to stay as long as it took. We had people at the top of the bridge, so there were 13 climbers, but then there, for each climber, we had a support person. So they could lower us, you know, water, food. So we were prepared to stay as long as we needed to.
0: And so with the blockade up, it became a matter of waiting. They knew roughly when the Feneca was supposed to leave, but the information was changing. So for now, They would just have to wait and bide their time.
4: We were going off of what local media was reporting. Um, So we knew what the rest of the world knew. And, you know, there were reports that it was expected to leave that morning at 5 a.m. And then there were reports that it was leaving actually at noon. And then there were reports that it wasn't leaving.
0: And so they waited. They waited and they waited. And that's how it went the entire first day. Morning turned to afternoon, and afternoon turned to evening. And as night fell, there was still no indication of when the Feneca might try to leave.
2: Protesters have been hanging from the side of St. John's Bridge for nearly 19 hours now. Yeah, dozens of people have been out here all day and and some even here tonight. You can see the kayaks back there. Portland police so far have kept their distance and right now it looks like this protest is gonna go on through the night.
4: I slept like a baby that, that second night, I passed out right away. Once the sun was down, I was so exhausted. The next day, I was sleeping, um, it was very early in the morning and my fellow climber to the left of me tugged on the ropes because we had ropes connecting each of the climbers and woke me up and said, all right, it's leaving. It was kind of an immediate panic in the sense that it takes some time to get resituated to repel down from camp. So again, it was that kind of nerves of like, all right, I have to do everything in a safe way, but I also need, you know, we're also under a time frame right now. But then there was also a lot of excitement like, here we go, like we're going to actually do what we said we were going to do, which is dangle in front of this ship and block it from leaving. You know, the ship approached very slowly. It had three or four um, police vessels, um, and then I believe one private vessel that kept playing this message over and over again, telling us that it was a recorded message, telling us that we are currently breaking Shell's court injunction that it has against Greenpeace. and it slowly approached towards us and we all had descended to probably about the 50-foot mark and again we had ropes between each climber so it couldn't squeeze through one of our climbers over a radio called the Fenneca and you know, told them that there was an aerial blockade.
3: You are currently on a collision course with activate-
4: And that if they proceeded, they would be putting lives in danger. And they stopped their engines, and they turned around.
1: Fenneca very well may be turning around at this point. Uh, you can see that it is starting to uh, make its way you know, this has uh, certainly uh, been met with uh, a lot of cheers on the bridge here at Cathedral Park. So, you can see the back end of this boat and the Fenneca is now moving, uh, it appears.
4: Watching the Fenneca turn around was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. But I think it was, it was the the broader sense of collectiveness and togetherness that was happening. You know, as the Fenneca was leaving, it wasn't just up there. The, there was a park next to the bridge, and we just, as time went on, just watched this park fill and fill and fill up with more and more people. Uh,
1: and those uh, Kai activists uh, have not been moving. As, as a matter of fact, there were more of them coming in order to impede the progress of the ship. Uh, this would really be a uh, success for the environmentalists, for Greenpeace, if indeed that is what is happening.
4: So it was this incredible moment of success, and um, we had really succeeded in what we wanted to do.
0: And so they had done it. After hours of waiting, they had actually prevented the Fenneca from leaving. But then, of course, as one of the news anchors put it, then the question becomes how long would the ship remain in portland and when would they make another attempt to get out when are they going to try again so having been successful in blocking the fenica at least in this first showdown they each climbed back up to their individual camps and remember at this point they had been up there for more than 30 hours 30 hours dangling off the side of the saint john's bridge and i was curious what are the biggest challenges of being up there that long? Densit, exhaustion and lack of sleep. But one factor was simply the elements. Perhaps fittingly, it was an unusually hot day.
4: It was over 95, maybe even over 100, both
0: days. So the heat was really rough. But other than that, really the main challenge was just staying busy and not getting bored. I
4: was very privileged in that I was on the social media team. so. I had an iPhone that I was tweeting from and I could see kind of the news that we were getting, so I had kind of this connection to the outside world, so that helped a little bit with boredom, but you know, we were prepared, people brought books, you know, we didn't want to sit around, so sometimes we would just climb up for exercise or rappel down a little bit and then climb back up for exercise.
0: And of course the obvious thought occurs, I think, to all of us, well, how do you relieve yourself?
4: Yeah, I think that's the most common question we did. Uh, Reddit asked me anything, and I'm pretty sure that was the first question asked. Uh, so it's not that exciting. Um, number one is into a Gatorade bottle, and number two is into a bag, and uh, you make it work.
0: But back to the showdown. Yes, the protesters had won that first face-off with Feneca, but of course they knew that the Feneca would be trying again.
1: Now, again, we are waiting on an update on when the Feneca might try to leave Portland again. But as you heard, uh, these protesters say they are determined they have enough food and supply to stay on the St. John's Bridge for quite some time. Back to you.
0: They spent the rest of the morning in their camps and the crowd on the ground, both on the water and at the park, only got larger
5: interesting to note that compared to this morning when that ship first started to move, the protests seemed to have almost tripled in size.
0: Morning turned into afternoon, and soon it seemed like something was poised to happen.
5: And now, in the afternoon here, word that that ship is on the move again or shortly going to be on the move again.
4: It was pretty apparent something was going to happen when all of a sudden you saw four or five Coast Guard and just different law enforcement come in with boats. So we definitely knew someone was coming.
5: Okay, now we have word that the Shell oil icebreaker, the icebreaker, the Fenneca is starting to move. Jennifer is standing by from your vantage point. What's happening there, Jennifer?
3: That's right, Jeff. We're on a bluff that overlooks the Fenneca and we've just noticed that it has started to slightly move. I'm going to step out of the way so you can see it. It's pulling away from the dry dock there at Swan Island and now that ship is finally departing
0: the Coast Guard announced over loudspeakers that the waterway was now closed and started one by one edging the kayakers to the side.
6: Right now, Coast Guard and law enforcement boats surrounding these kayakers, but they seem determined to stay out here despite what any Coast Guard or law enforcement vessels that approach them tell them. There are a lot of people on the dock here and along the shore lined up waiting and watching to see what happens as this unfolds.
0: On top, the police shut the bridge to traffic and took the support team off. And they gave three of the climbers a choice.
4: Three of our climbers, fire rescue gave them the option of either fire rescue setting up their own rope system and transferring them and then lowering them and cutting our lines, or giving the climbers the option to lower themselves. So Two of our climbers said, we will lower ourselves, and one climber said, you can move me to your system and lower me.
5: Okay, we well at a quarter to five, if you're just joining us, here's the latest on the situation, the protest. The special rope team from Portland Fire and Portland Police moving in, cutting the ropes of the uh, protesters, attaching them to their ropes and lowering them down below, and this is a live look at the situation right there. Wow. And you could just, did you yep. just see him cut right there? He just, and, and... That's what they're doing right now. We know they've removed two protesters so
4: far, Jennifer. So at that point, three climbers had been extracted, and there was a large enough hole for the ship to get through. The ship was coming through the first bridge, and we could see it coming through the first bridge, and, and it started coming towards us. And this was a hard moment. We were descended back into our lower positions, but we knew that there was a large enough gap. And this is where, you know, a really hard moment turned to a beautiful moment. The crowds on the water started cheering, uh, stop that ship, stop that ship. And the kayak that had been wrangled to the the side of the Waterway and pushed back onto shore. One of them said, "You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take this." And that kayaktivist just bolted, right towards Athenica. and that led into this huge wave of at least 75 kayaktivists and people on stand-up paddleboards, people swimming, just charging this boat.
6: Well, right now, the Fennec has moved back a good 200 feet or so because more kayakers have been able to get into the middle of the Willamette. Not too long ago, Steve, when we talked just five minutes ago, they were kept pretty close to the shoreline and one by one, they were able to break away and they were able to get into the middle.
2: In fact, there was a short swim chase going on. It was quite bizarre. Uh, I believe they finally did uh, get him in the boat, but we're having the same thing now. Uh, And the Fennec is right here. It's right there at the doorstep. It's It's right at the doorstep.
4: And it was such an instant wave and motion that law enforcement couldn't control it and these kayak activists were you know dodging it dodging law enforcement crafts and trying to get in the way of this Fennecot.
6: Uh So that's what's going on right now but it is going to be very tough to have you know 10 or so boats to try to wrangle in as, as many as 45 to 50 kayak and canoes. Initially, they had a pretty good path, but that has since been completely clogged up as the protesters have been able to escape the corral that they were put in by the Coast Guard and police. And right now, the Fenneca is just moving up ever so slightly, almost at a sloth-like pace as it tries to make its march up the Willamette.
4: And the Fenneca definitely had to slow down its pace because it was almost it was beautiful, but it was complete chaos on the water of watching the law enforcement try and wrangle all, all these people and kind of keep them away from the Fenneca from so the Fenneca had a clear path to keep moving. But it was beautiful. It was, you know, from our view, it was just like all these little tiny, tiny kayaks just up against the ship. It was It was a true David and Goliath moment and a true moment of of a movement of people really coming together and saying enough is enough.
0: Forward just a tad,
6: and it has Coast Guard boats that are flanking it and being right in front of it to protect it from any uh, kayaker or canoe that gets nearby. Let's let's go back up to Mike Warner. Mike, I know you're up in chopper two. Uh, it's it moving.
2: It definitely is moving. In fact, it's approaching that that hole that we were talking about earlier. It's going exactly where it's going. That hole that that they cleared out about three protesters.
6: Steve, right now we have the Fenneca that is no more than 100 feet from being able to clear the St. John's Bridge. It is flanked by Coast Guard boats on each side, and there continues to be kayakers and canoers that are making their way closer to the middle. But at this point, the Fenneca is not turning around, and it does appear to have just the slimmest of paths to be able to clear through, uh, continue to just migrate closer and closer in, and now there are heavy boos from the hundreds of protesters here who are not happy to see it make its way right under the St. John's Bridge.
4: Now At that point, the Fenica started passing underneath the bridge and the crowd from the shore was still yelling, stop that ship.
5: What a sight as a vessel makes its way to the St. John's Bridge. It's hard to tell from this vantage point exactly how close those kayakers are, but it, it's, it appears to be very close. Stop,
4: stop, stop.
5: So this is sort of a, a dangerous situation here, but it's about to go under the bridge right now. Path in front of the ship is clear, we're told. Here we go. And let's just be silent here and watch this unfold with you as the Fenneca crosses under the St. John's Bridge, going under left of
4: center. You know, it was really hard. I sat there and I watched that ship go by. And... Uh, knew that we we hadn't fully succeeded but as the ship completely went under it there was just this roar from the crowd and just this like absolute excitement and this this moment of failure Amelie turned to this this moment of uh, complete complete like accomplishment because it was more than just blocking that ship it was more than the climbers getting in the way of the ship it was It was bringing a community of folks together, and we had done that, and I think the people on the water realized that. They realized that it was bigger than just the blockade, and that these people had stood up and said, this isn't right. So as hard as it was to watch it go, it was kind of a very joyous moment as well.
5: And Jennifer, I've got to say, at five minutes to six o'clock, the drama appears to be over, as the Fenica has made its way under the St. John's Bridge. We still see protesters hanging up there in protest, but they cleared what the three or four protesters who were in the in the middle span. Of
4: the... But yeah, forty hours up up there, it, it's it's a weird feeling when you get back to shore. You you ever had sea legs? It's kind of like land legs where your body is very uncomfortable walking and knows how to and you can I could walk but I felt like I was swaying left and right.
0: And and so when you finally got down or when all of you were were reunited, what what was the mood like?
4: <laughs> it was a lot of hugs and smiles and just congratulations and um On a personal level, I feel we were very successful in what we wanted to do. We turned the ship around, we delayed it for 40 hours, and we we were part of something much larger than us, and we didn't even plan that, and that was beautiful.
0: <laughs> I mean, you had to go through so much in order to take part in this action. You know, there were potential legal consequences, there was just discomfort, I'm sure. It was actually scary at parts. To a lot of people, it would seem seem quite quite crazy. It's quite radical to to take part in, in such a thing. Why, for you, was it was it worth the price?
4: There's just there's so many reasons. You know, I climate change is you know it's it's already impacting us and people on the front lines of climate change are already being impacted. And I have the ability, the skills, and honestly, the privilege to be able to to do something like this. And I, and I need to use that privilege in a, in a way that I feel is important and effective. And this was it. I have seven nieces and nephews. You know, what what does the climate look for them? It's just, there's so many reasons to act. It's hard to articulate just one. But why do something that's extreme? Well, you know, I've I've already written, I've done petitions, I've lobbied members of Congress, I've written letters to the editor, I've organized large rallies. You know, the environmental movement has been talking about the impacts of climate change since the 90s, since before the 90s and at what point do you say enough is enough and say we need to put our bodies on the line because this is so important and I think I've reached that point. If anything I'm more eager to continue the work I do every day which is is exactly that is I'm, I'm an organizer by trade it's, it's organizing people to stand up to environmental injustice and to say we can't drill in the Arctic. And so I'm very much just as motivated, if not more. Would I do something like this again? Absolutely, absolutely. Because I really think we're at the point that we need to be doing this. And not everyone can do that, and that's okay, but um, there's there's many roles people can play. And this is a role that I'm able to play, and if I'm asked to do something like this again, I, would, I wouldn't I would hesitate.
3: To me, it was wildly successful. For 40 hours, the whole world was watching what was going on in Portland. You know, the activists, of course, take this so personally and so... To them, the Fenneca leaving was really hard to watch, but acknowledging all the people around them, all the people across the world that were now really inspired and wanted to do whatever they could to stop Arctic drilling was a big deal. And then, of course... We work in a coalition of a lot of other groups, and, and this is something Greenpeace does or direct actions like this, but a lot of other groups like the Sierra Club, Alaska Wilderness League, you know, their strength is definitely more in getting political attention. So while we were hanging from a bridge, they were working to make sure that um, politicians were, you know, coming out in opposition to Arctic drilling. And so since then, we've seen every Democratic candidate come out uh, against Arctic drilling, including Hillary Clinton, which I'll be honest, was a pretty big surprise. The thing about climate change, and then all the other issues that fall underneath it, including Arctic drilling, is that they are so complex. And and you know Obama says this all the time. There's there's not a silver bullet. I think what ends up working is seeing such a triage of pressure coming from certain angles. So this is Greenpeace's thing. You know, we do direct action when we when we can. We will peacefully put our bodies, or our kayaks, or whatever it is, in between a company and and its plans to destroy, destroy something like the Arctic and contribute to climate change.
0: And then just two weeks ago, at the end of September, Shell made a startling announcement.
2: An absolutely huge week if you're a person who likes living on Earth and cares about what happens to it. Shell announces it will stop its massively controversial bid to drill in the Alaskan Arctic, years-long endeavor costing $7 billion That's Billion with a B. Shell says it ended exploration for the foreseeable future, citing not only those high costs, but also admitting it just didn't find enough oil. Company also noting the unpredictable federal regulatory environment in offshore Alaska. Shell's decision to end its Arctic exploration speaks not only to the shifting economics of fossil fuels in the era of climate change, but also to the power of grassroots activism. Controversy has followed the company's quest to drill in the Arctic ever since the Obama administration approved the project. That quest has been met with months of dramatic protests, from activists boarding one of Shell's drill rigs to a flotilla of kayaktivists blocking that drill rig to protesters repelling off a bridge in an effort to stop an icebreaker ship. As The Guardian notes, the company privately began to admit it had been surprised by the popular opposition it faced. Today, climate activists took a victory lap. Environmentalist Bill McKibben tweeting a photo of one of the kayak protests, noting, Shell thought about another summer of this and they blinked. And that's remarkable. If activism did factor into Shell's decision to call it quits in the Arctic, that is a huge win for a small and dedicated group of people who don't often get this kind of result.
0: All of which reminds me of something else Bill McKibben said at the end of our interview from a couple of months ago. The
6: the message is... Um, As an individual, you're basically powerless against climate change. So our job is to become, you know, the most important thing an individual can do is not be an individual. It's to join together with other people. That's why we set up
2: 350.org and that's why if we win, we're going to win.
0: Since you jumped in with both feet with launching 350.org is there anything that that surprised you most about the fight around climate change
3: the fact that uh, once we started organizing
6: we started winning some and it's a good reminder that the other side looks all powerful until you begin to push and then if you push hard enough you got a chance Uh, no guarantees we're going to win but there
5: is a guarantee now we're going to fight and that's really good
0: And that's all for The Elephant this week. Thanks again to Dan Cannon and Cassidy Sharp. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kevin Kaners, with help from Matthias Gutz and Christina Peters. And thanks this week to Mervin Deganos. The Elephant is made with funding by the CKAA, a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. You can find The Elephant online. We're at elephantpodcast.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. And if you like the show, consider helping us out by recommending us to a friend or writing us a review on iTunes. And for another interesting environmental podcast, but one that's quite irreverent, check out Completely Optional Knowledge, the show that answers questions, You Never Knew You Had. It's a podcast by Greenpeace. And to check it out, just head to completelyoptionalknowledge.com. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you in two weeks' time.